This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. A product of the California suburbs, Pab Mandel was overlooked and unexceptional. When her father ships her off on a youth group tour of Israel, he inadvertently catapults his 17-year-old daughter into a world of European backpackers, seize-the-day Israelis, and the fallout of Cold War-era politics. Border violence hadn't been on the birthright tour agenda, but then neither had domestic violence, going broke, getting wasted, or getting lost. Pam joins me on the podcast today to talk about her new book, The Same River Twice, and the realities of writing proposals for travel memoirs. Pam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you are a freelance journalist and run a newsletter called The State Cider, which I want to ask you about. But your your new book is called The Same River Twice, a memoir of dirtbag <laughs> backpackers, bomb shelters, and, and bad travel. Um, I want to talk about the book, but uh, set it up for us. Like, uh, who are you? What do you do? And what is this state cider business? So who am I? What do I do? And what is this state cider business? Uh, let's see. That's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> that, that covers a lot of ground. So, uh, what I do is a lot of things. And, you know, I always, I always get a little bit, um, I'm a little sheepish about being called a journalist. I'm a writer Ah. and that flavor of writing that I do varies depending on what day you talk to me. Uh, Some days I'm doing more journalistic kind of things. Other days I'm a technical writer. Some days I'm a travel writer. And then uh, more recently, you know, because my book came out, I'm a memoirist. So just uh, there's writing comes in so many different flavors that to get uh, dropped into the journalist box is maybe both limiting and not exactly true. And I think of journalism in a much more kind of shoe leather, leather research, go find things out and tell the truth kind of situation. I and I don't do quite so much of that. So just, just point of order. Um, Got you. Uh, so that's what I do. Uh, I'm a writer. I live in Seattle, Washington uh, with a dog named Harley. Uh, and uh, the State Cider is a newsletter that I work on with two fellow travel writer people, Andy Murdoch, who was my editor when I was still writing for Lonely Planet, and Doug Mack, who I met when World Hum was still a thing. I don't know if you remember World mm-hmm. Hum. Um, so I met Doug Mack while I was a regular contributor to World Home. Doug was a contributor as well. And the three of us worked together on this project called The State Cider, where we aggregate stories about the U.S. and publish some original work. We're really interested in broadening the point of view that people take when we think about what it means to be American, what it means to travel in the U.S., what the American experience looks like. Oh, cool. So it's a statesider.us. But interestingly, this new book has little bit to do with the U.S. (laughs) as a point of departure and a point uh, of return, right? So uh, let's dive into this new book. Uh, Tell us about, tell us a little bit about The Same River Twice. Yeah, so my book is a memoir that covers 
the travel that I did starting when I was 17 till I was about, I guess, 20, 21. Um, and I was raised in a West Coast, pretty liberal Jewish family. And when I, I graduated high school early and at 17, my father sent me off on a birthright trip to Israel and some things happened. <laughs> and I, I, I feel like I, I don't totally want to give it all away, but let's just say that the adventure that I embarked upon was not the intended goal and or end result of <laughs> what you think of as your traditional birthright tour. Uh, let's just say I, I kind of went off the map uh, as a result of starting those travels. And on the one hand, uh, it turned out to be a lot of bad things happened and I was in some rough places. And on the other hand, it also opened up for me, my lifelong love of travel. Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to trivialize the the bad things happening because um, readers will, will know that they are indeed bad things and, you know, very, very terrible things, in, in fact. Um, but, you know, the saying goes, you know, it's, it's the bad experiences that make travel good, right? Um, there's like the problems that you encounter, the ordeals that you encounter in travel makes it interesting. These are the stories that we want to tell. And it seems like you have uh, a lot plugged into this book. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's two things, right? When you start talking about bad travel, uh, you know, there's bad travel. So, so in the center, this is, this is not a spoiler in the center of the book is a, a relationship with a, my boyfriend who turns out to be violent, but, and, th and that is bad. That is empirically bad and, and does not make for things to be more interesting just by default as you know, that's stuff that shouldn't happen. Right. But there's bad travel where you get stuck or you run out of money or you're forced to be resourceful or these other kinds of things. Uh, or you know these misadventures, you miss a train, you end up someplace you didn't expect to be, that kind of stuff where it absolutely makes for more interesting stories. Good, easy travel right. tends to not always, I, I'm not saying you can't get good stories from that. It's just that there are always good stories from things going wrong. Right, right. So set it up for us. I mean, you are 17... Uh, 17 years old. This is kind of late 70s, California, stoner chick, um, <laughs> uh, kind of naive, I guess. And your, your parents send you away. Like, so t tell us about, like, set it up for us. Like, why? Yeah, why? So, <laughs> so, so I got sent off on this birthright tour and a birthright tour is uh, for, so this is before the term birthright was an actual thing. It was, so this was, this would have been 1981 when I went to Israel for the first time. And they, the idea is that you uh, indoctrinate the youth, the Jewish youth of other nations into <laughs> the necessity and glory of the Jewish homeland. That is really the goal for it. And this is me speaking from years of perspective on it. At the time, I don't think I realized that that was the goal at all. To me, it was just sort of this summer camp with a bunch of Jewish kids kind of thing. <laughs> So, but that is definitely the goal. Birthright is designed to have you have um, young Jewish kids sort of fall in love with the homeland, right? And, and become connected to it. So that's the goal of the trip. I got there and two things sort of influenced my experience there. The first thing was that almost immediately after my arrival, the uh, PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, uh, started shelling Israel from the Lebanese border. 
So I had not been there for two weeks when I ended up in a bomb shelter waiting for all clear sirens to blow. The other thing that happened was at the time, Europe was in the midst of a great economic depression and many, many, many young people in there sort of my age, their late teens, early adults, early 20s, didn't know what to do with themselves. And they could go to Israel and sort of wait out this economic depression, working on the kibbutzim, working on these collective farms to make a living. And so we have, I'm from California, this very, like you said, sort of naive girl. And I end up in a war zone surrounded by disaffected European youth, along with my own cohort. Mm-hmm. So and you- it's a complicated collision of identities and cultures and intent. So you're on this, uh, this kibbutz, this, this uh, farm, this kind of like agricultural type of farm working. And the the confluence here is you're coming there, the Europeans are coming and that's where you meet your boyfriend along with some of the other people that you meet, like the soldiers and and things like that. Right. Yeah. so this is where it yeah. comes to, what kind of work did you do on, on the farm? You know, it's funny. I did an interview with um, Lavinia Spaulding, who oh, is yeah. the editor for the best women's travel writing series. And she did this list of all the jobs that I did. She was like, I did this list. And when I heard her read it back <laughs> to me, I was like, this is crazy. Because I didn't realize we were just doing what, you know, you get up in the morning and you do what you had been assigned to do the night before. Right. But I did, I harvested oranges. I boxed chickens for market. I worked a mechanical pipe threader. I drove a tractor. I worked in the laundry. I washed dishes. I babysat the kids. Uh, (laughs) What else did I do? I mean, I did so many things. You just did what needed to be done. I mean, that's sort of the nature of the kibbutz uh, as a whole anyway, is that like you're there and you do the work you're assigned to go do. Mm -hmm. And you... In doing that work, you're mingling with some of the Israelis and uh, some of the the people from Europe that come to work as well. You guys are mingling and mixing and you you meet soldiers and that's part of the experience of being on the kibbutz. Yeah, you meet the you meet the residents, of course, and you work with them. You know, they drive the van that takes you out to the fields in the morning or they are the ones teaching you how to load the industrial dishwasher or whatever. And then the other thing that happens there is that Israeli soldiers are assigned to these places as security, Mm. right? Israel sees itself a walking security risk, no matter what is happening. And so there's always somebody with a gun. And so Israeli soldiers are assigned there as security. And where, where I started out and all the places where I ended up, actually, there were always there's always shared housing, sort of these communal housing kind of things. And the Israelis soldiers are your neighbors. So you hang out with them a lot, too. And they're also they're they're You know, every, all these people are young. Right. Everybody's in there like, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21. And that whole that whole group of that whole age group is all hanging out together. It doesn't really matter so much where they're from. It's more about their age. Mm-hmm. And that was your first time in Israel. That was my first time in Israel. Yeah. So what was the experience like being this, you know, naive, hot stoner uh, girl from California (laughs) who gets plopped in the middle of a desert, essentially in the promised land around these hot kind of Israeli soldiers. Like, what is is that experience like? So it was thrilling. Of course, it was thrilling, right? And uh, young Israelis 
want nothing more than to be somewhere else. At least it seemed to me at the time that they wanted nothing more than to get out, right? They, they all go to war. Mm-hmm. They were very aware of their own, the tenuousness of their existence, right? And so, and again, I'm there in a time where there's, there are literally bombs coming across the border, right? So they're acutely aware of the fact that they're continually at risk. And so if you are a young American girl, you are the most desirable object on the planet to them because (laughs) if they right if they can get you if they can sort of hook you and uh, in such a way that they want out you know and they look at you like you're their you're their exit strategy Mm -hmm. so it's a little it's strange because like if you were as sort of young and and unclued in as as I was, you could think of it as very very flattering. In retrospect, it's super tactical, right? Like there's <laughs> something incredibly cynical and tactical about it, where they're like, "I just got to get this girl to fall in love with me, and we're going to get married, or we're going to move to California, and I'll figure everything else out once I just get out of here." <laughs> That's a good you word know? with with the soldiers, right? It's very tact- tactical. Yes, <laughs> indeed, like strategic. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so th- th- this is, uh, I guess, a few days, a uh, few days, a-, a few decades after, after kind of the '60s and uh, you know that 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 whole time. But it, it does seem uh, from from reading reading your book that there is this very kind of you know free and open. I, I don't want to say imply that it was like you know free love, peace, and, and pot and all that stuff. But it it does it does seem from reading your book that there's this kind of um, very open life lifestyle that in the sense that you're hitchhiking with uh, some of your friends and um, your significant others, uh, you're sleeping wherever you can sleep. It's this very kind of like, I don't know, free and open and unlimited type of experience as a young person in a strange land. Does that make sense? Yeah. I, so I was not the first generation of travelers to do the hippie trail that Maureen and Tony Wheeler made famous. Mm -hmm but I use their first book. So when I finally end up in India, I'm carrying the first edition of Lonely Planet India, right? And so I, so I don't know those, that generation, they just, they just sort of figured it out as they went along. We had slightly more um, guidelines. You know, there was a little bit of history for us to look back on and sort of figure out how to get things done, where to go. Uh, where to stay, how to get there. Uh, and, but I, I do think there was definitely a, a generation of people that were sort of untethered and skittering across the surface of the planet without mm-hmm. any particular destination in mind. And I accidentally ended up being part of that. Mm-hmm. Following in the footsteps of, <laughs> of the hippies. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's yeah. It. I mean, I, I literally walked part of that, you know, part of that known Mm-hmm. Uh, pathway. I mean, I didn't go across Afghanistan because you could not, it was not possible when I was in that part of the world. But, you know, the places that I went in India were definitely these sort of hippie trail destination kind of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We hear about um, very often, you, you know, this, this narrative um, that women are perhaps scared or hesitant to travel alone because of abuse and you know, vulnerability and these these types of uh, very real issues. Um, but here you are, or here you were in, in the early 80s kind of doing that. So I'm just curious to get your perspective on how things were as an independent female traveler then and how things might be today. 
Yeah, that's a, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this a fair bit and it's, it's something that people ask me and have been asking me for years because I'm a woman who travels alone a fair bit about like, mm-hmm. aren't you afraid? Is it safe? All these things. The places where things go wrong in my book are with people I know. Mm-hmm. So that's a point I want to make sort of out of the gate is that strangers were not dangerous to me most of the time. There's a, some minor incidents with some sort of handsy stuff while, while I was hitchhiking. Um, and that's about it. The rest of it, all the bad stuff that happens is with people I know. And, you know, I hitchhiked up and down Corfu by myself and I wandered around. Like I hitchhiked all over Israel by myself a fair bit. I was 17, right? Like all kinds of bad things could have gone wrong. They never did. There are two possibilities. One is that I'm was incredibly naive. I just didn't know any better. And the other is like, maybe the world's not actually that dangerous. Mm-hmm. I prefer to veer. It's, it's true that I was incredibly naive, but I also prefer from the benefit of distance to settle on the idea that the world is actually not that dangerous. And that a lot of that fear that's projected on us is there for other reasons. Mm-hmm. It's got nothing to do with whether or not it's dangerous to go hitchhiking across, I don't know, Greece, right? Like it's not, it was not dangerous. It just wasn't. Yes. I'm not, I'm not intending here to put words in your mouth or anything, but um, do you think then that some of these fears and hesitations uh, by uh, female or women travelers today, do you think they're, they're a little bit overinflated or, or or kind of over, overhyped? So, at the risk of being that person, <laughs> I'm going to say it's the patriarchy, man. <laughs> uh, and let, let me elaborate a little bit. Uh, the problem is not women travelers. The problem is men doing things to women travelers. So for starters, there's that, right? <laughs> like, like there's a whole like women shouldn't be traveling alone, which is a victim blaming bullshit. Right, right, right. Right. And the people perpetrating those things upon women are the problem, not the women. So that's why I'm like, it's the patriarchy, man. Uh, So there is, and this is not to say that there aren't bad actors in the world or that there aren't things that women travelers might need to be more aware of just because of how women are treated in the world. That stuff is unfortunately true, but in general, I I think that those fears are projected upon women and we are expected to have those fears without there being real evidence to the, to say that the world is dangerous. I still travel alone. Mm -hmm. Uh, I still do it now. I love it. It's so great. Uh, And, you know, I'm not a 22 year old hottie anymore. So there's (laughs) some advantages to that. Like there's this advantage to being a middle-aged woman traveling along, which is you have a certain invisibility until people decide either they want to talk to you or you want to talk to them. You have a lot, you have sort of this control. And when you're a 22 year old hottie, you don't have so much of that. But that said, I'm not sure that a lot of that stuff is not overblown and external. And we want people to be afraid because that's how we control them. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the patriarchy, man. <laughs> yeah. No, well, that <laughs> makes know? that makes sense because the the you know in in your book at least the the abusive relationship that you're with, as you as you say, um, um, follows you around, right? It's it's yeah uh, from Israel, and you guys 
travel around kind of the world together. I think you go from um, from there, you go to England and to, to Egypt and Pakistan towards uh, India. You guys go around the world together and this kind of abusive relationship follows you. And, you know, this remi- reminds me, my, my, my wife and I, we watch a lot of crime shows together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, we're taking notes and stuff. Just kidding. But we watch a lot of uh, crime shows together. And she always points out that, you know, the murderers are the people that they're sleeping with, like their friends or, you know, the person right. that they know. Crimes right. typically are perpetrated by people close to the victim. The call's coming from inside the house. Right. The problem is not... The problem is not uh, young men on the streets of Cairo, for example. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, you know, for me, it was not the young men on the streets of Cairo, although Cairo was a difficult place for me. It was my partner, right? Like the, the, that was the real danger. It wasn't the, it wasn't the strangers that were around me at all. I, I think that I also th- wonder if there's something I can't quite figure out what the benefit is. I mean, you, you're a travel person. I'm a travel person. And so this is something that's not inherent in our makeup to be afraid of strangers, right? We, we celebrate that. That's why we like to go out in the world. Strangers are one of the very best things. And something I miss tremendously in the midst of this pandemic is actually strangers, you know, talking to people on the bus, random people at the cafe, people I have to share a table with. Like, that's the kind of stuff. I really miss that a lot. And that's the stuff that makes is exciting about going out into the world to experience as strangers. There, I wonder if there is some benefit that I don't understand in making us afraid of those people that, you know, also that is like, why, why do we want people to be afraid of strangers? I, I don't know. Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. I guess we'll let the readers discover what becomes of you and <laughs> your boyfriend and you know, your bad travel abroad. But uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and ask you um, about your your path to publishing um, because I think it's a it's an interesting story of like <laughs> frustration and I don't know fatigue. You wrote on um, on Twitter that you were having some difficulties. I think finding an agent or a publisher, and then an agent DM'd you, slid into your DMs, and started a conversation. Right? Can you can you tell us about this story? Yeah, yeah. So I had you know I finished my manuscript and I decided that it was a thing and I was going to try to sell it. And, you know, I did all the things you're supposed to do. I wrote a proposal. I made a spreadsheet. I started researching agents. I sent out the pitches. I did all this stuff. And as during the course of this, I would once a week or so, I would post to Twitter about my count. I have sent out this week. I sent out five new proposals. That's a total of 15. I have received three rejections and 12 no responses, right? So I did this for, I can't remember how long it took. Time is so strange right now. (laughs) (laughs) It seemed like an eternity. Let's say I did it for an eternity. Uh, And that eternity is behind me now. But so I did this for a while and I did this until I got to 74 proposals. And at 75, I got a message from an acquisitions editor 
via Twitter. And he said, Hey, I'm an, I'm an acquisitions editor at Skyhorse. And I saw that you've been posting about your manuscript, that you have a book you want to sell. Can I see it? Uh, And, you know, I said, of course you can see it. And so I sent him my proposal and my manuscript and he disappeared as they do. It just happens. Silence. A lot of waiting in silence is a good chunk of the process of getting a book out. And I emailed him shortly before Thanksgiving. This would have been 2019 and said, hey, I'm going to start pitching this thing again after the first of the year. I'm just curious about where you are. And he sent me he replied immediately and said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I've been so busy. I haven't got back to you, but I really like your book. Can you just give me a couple of days? Give me a couple of days. And I said, yeah, of course I can. I'll, I'll hold on. And two or three days later, they sent me a contract. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think part of the story that um, may not be that obvious to, to some people, but you know, this, this process of putting proposals together is, is daunting because each agent or, you know, rep representative wants basically a different proposal with different criteria and, that part of it seems to be a headache. So to go through 75 iterations of that, it's a, it's a, it's a quite a big task. I had this sort of Lego kit of pieces <laughs> that I would snap together. Right. So I would rewrite the, the initial proposal cover letter every time, but after a while, maybe 10 or 15 in, I realized that they were, there were specific components and not every agent wanted every component Sometimes they wanted three chapters. Sometimes they wanted the whole manuscript. Sometimes they wanted the first 10 pages. So I had all these chunks that were exactly how, so so it was not that hard for me to actually start pulling things together. The thing that's hard about it though, is that the further I got, the better I got at sending my pitches out and my proposals, the more demoralizing it was to get the rejections, Mm. right? Like, because so much time goes by, right? And there's a lot, again, there's a lot of silence and you send these things out and you do it because you believe it's going to happen, you know, and it gets harder and harder to believe with every rejection. The, The other thing that I was surprised was hard for me was I got some really nice rejections and those were heartbreaking because I didn't understand how they could say these things about the book and then also turn it down. What what were some of their reasons? So I had one editor tell me that she thought my story was incredibly gutsy and that it was clear that I knew how to write and (laughs) write. And then another one uh, what this other one sat on it. She said, you know, I just, I really love this book and I can't decide if I can sell it or not. Mm. Uh, and it was much easier the, the further I got down the line for them to say, nah, this isn't for me. than it was for me to hear that they liked the book. The component that I didn't understand before I started on this process was that the quality of the book and its resonance with the agent do not necessarily equate to them thinking that they can sell it to a major press. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand that when I started. So some writers will believe that they get rejections because they suck. And the fact of the matter is it's a business and they need to make money. And if they don't think they can sell the book, it doesn't matter how beautifully you write. 
they're not going to pick it up. Yeah, that was a really difficult lesson for me. And it came in the weirdest way because it came in this, it came packaged in, you know, a shiny velvet box. It was beautiful and sparkly. And, and it would be like, we love this. No. And I just, I found that super confusing. So what do you think the the, the issue was? Some of your editors you mentioned said that they couldn't sell it, but um, it, it seems to me that publishing a memoir and add travel to that equation, a travel memoir in the United States uh, might be a, a difficult a difficult endeavor. So what do you think the, the, the problems were or the hiccups? Why, why, why weren't people picking this up? I, I wish I could say that I knew. It's confusing to me. I, I had somebody tell me that I wasn't famous enough, <laughs> you know, which is, which is a little bit flip, but um, – may be true that if I'd been a Kardashian, it would have been no problem. They would have been like, oh, we'll sell a zillion of these just because you're a Kardashian, right? Uh, And that's, again, that's a flip example, but I think there's an underpinning of truth to that, that that the quality of your writing, it can be inverse to the expanse of your reach. Um, So I think there's something about that you know, they all told me that travel was hard to sell, just in general, a tough, a tough sell, that publishers just weren't picking up that many. And if they had sold, uh, if an agent had sold a travel memoir earlier that year, their odds of selling another one were very low. Like there was only so much space on the shelf allotted to this particular flavor of book. Mm. But I don't really have a lot of insight because again, you know, I ended up selling the book directly to the press. I still don't have an agent. And so I never really understood what would cause an agent to say no right? or what would cause an agent to be like, I love this, but I just don't think it's going to make it to the next step. Mm-hmm. I just don't, I don't really know. It's still a little bit of a black box to me. Right. Yeah. Your point about the, the, the marketing is um, an interesting one. I saw the book proposal of a, a blogger in the United States, a famous blogger in the United States who uh, published a uh, memoir uh, recently. And uh, this person dedicated, I don't know, 25, 30% of that proposal to marketing efforts and platform type questions. Like this is how many visitors they get uh, to the blog. This is why they think that it will sell. And it was picked up like that. And right. if from the perspective of a publisher, like if I'm putting money down on the table to sell a book and, and, and someone comes to me with that kind of proposal, like if I didn't accept it, I would essentially be leaving money on the table. Right. right? So right. it's interesting to see, you know, how, how this shakes down. Uh, you know, you have a, a book that's a good book. It's well-written that has a hard time finding a publisher. And then you have a book that's perhaps not as not as good, not as well written, but has an easy time finding a public. Yeah, they, they talk a lot about platform and I did a bunch of work too. You know, I have a platform. It exists and it's deep and it's existed for a long time. It's not broad, but it's deep. Is it the uh, Nerd's and, Eye? Yeah, Nerd's Eye View, right? Um, you know, and I've been on Twitter for a ridiculous long time. And, you know, I, I wrote a piece for Jane Friedman's website about um, how I got my book deal and many of the comments said, she has a ton of followers. How could they have rejected her? And I was like, so 
what's a ton of followers anyway? Because <laughs> apparently publishers did not think that was a ton of followers. Bunch of writers on who read my piece thought it was a ton of followers. Not enough to get me a book deal. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's very uh, subjective. And it, like you said earlier, it's it's a business. They're, right. they're looking for a book that's going to sell. The other thing, though, that, that I... I have learned is that platform as much as it's a thing that publishers say they want, it doesn't immediately translate to sales either. Like that's not a sure thing. It's just not, I know a handful of people have very large platforms and their books are not moving. Mm. It's not, they do not necessarily translate. Right. So there's some, pixie dust in there <laughs> it might, like, in, in the calculus of the publishing world it might you know help them in terms of statistics we'll have a better likelihood to sell more copies yeah. it, but it's not a guarantee for whatever yeah. reason you know you could have i don't know a global pandemic <laughs> or for example that could happen that would never happen that's absurd <laughs> Well, cool. Um, we're running a little bit uh, short on time here, and I was wondering if you could uh, wrap things up by reading a passage out of your new book. Yeah, I picked something for you. Uh, and I'm going to read this bit about, we talked about Cairo. I, I actually tagged a bit on Cairo to read. Back in Cairo, we went to the central station to buy train tickets to Luxor. Afterwards, we had a fight on a pedestrian overpass, and when Alistair pulled me close to apologize, some men yelled at us to take that behavior back to our own country. Men and women did not show affection in public. It was simply not done. Women were a minuscule percentage of who I saw out on the street. Young women were not out on the streets in the company of young men ever, not with their hair flying free, not with their legs bare. I saw couples, some walking side by side. The women wore long skirts and long sleeves, their heads covered in scarves. They were stylish with makeup and jewelry, but so modest. It was pairs of men who walked around holding hands in their white shirts and dark pants. I was another species entirely. Women did not behave as I did in Egypt. It would not have been considered respectable. I was constantly out of place. Once a young man stopped me on the street to ask me about my t-shirt. It had the Hebrew name of my kibbutz on it. It was that rare moment that I was out alone. I had gone to buy postcards and stamps at a shop around the corner from the hotel. The young man had been to Israel. His English was good. I greeted him with suspicion at first, not only because of what had happened in Alexandria. That's a callback to something that happens a little bit earlier in the book. On the streets of Cairo, I was clearly not a good woman. Men would shout after me, press up against me on the bus. I had taken to asking Alistair to stand in front of me, to use his body like a shield to keep the men from putting their hands on me. The streets were okay. The shouting just turned into noise, but I hated taking the bus because it was not just staring, it was much more. Hands were everywhere, and once a man pressed his lips on my arm as I hung on the rail to keep myself upright. I could have disappeared here easily enough. A black scarf, a modest blouse, a long skirt. I might have looked like any of the Egyptian women, but it did not occur to me to do so. And was no guarantee it would have helped. I dressed as modestly as I could with what I had, but it was not enough. I took a deep breath and turned to answer something the young man had asked me. He really did just want to talk. He asked me what I had been doing in Israel. He told me he had worked there and he had fond memories of it. And he wished me safe travels. 
The train to Luxor was quiet and clean. We were the roughest looking people in the car. A young girl ran up and down the aisle, playing with a bright green parakeet and smiling. The bird was docile, clearly attached to her and hopped in and out of her hands. Her family looked at us and smiled, shaking their heads indulgently. In the town of Luxor, we rented bicycles to see the towering statues of the pharaohs, the hieroglyphic covered tombs, the tulip columns, the partially excavated obelisks. This ancient city on the banks of the Nile was absent of visitors, just as vacant as the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. We rode our rattling bicycles up the hot open avenues of what was once Thebes with only the silent statues of long dead queens and kings for company. The sky was so blue, the carving still so sharp. I carried a bundle of cheap newsprint and made pencil rubbings of the reliefs, the scarab shaped seals and the profile of a princess with perfect braids, each twist of her hair carved in exquisite detail. At the entrance to each tomb, we would trade a stack of battered piastres for a printed ticket. Then the attendant would turn a broken scrap of mirror to reflect the sunlight from outside into the fresco covered chambers. The light was imperfect. There were dark corners into which we could not see. The rooms were empty, save for the paintings on the walls and maybe in the middle, a heavy stone coffin emptied of, his of its occupant. The objects I'd seen at the museum in Cairo or the British Museum in London, this is where they'd come from, these cool stone rooms. It's where they were meant to be still, hidden behind the sandy crenellated cliffs, were it not for archeologists and thieves waking the pharaohs from thousands of years of sleep to steal their jewelry. The avenues were lined with towering columns and nothing seemed quite real, including the silence. Maybe we'd see another pair of visitors over there, but then they'd disappear into the shadows of the massive columns at, Kar at the Karnak Temple complex. How could we have this place to ourselves? Where was everyone? Thanks for reading that. Uh, you know, the, the detail about the, the young girl on the bus holding the parakeet uh, reminded me something I wanted to ask you earlier, and um, that was a, a question about memory, right? Memory and memoir. Here we are, forty years later, and um, you know we have these striking de details in the book. How does one remember those details? The very short answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, and also, I, I mean, you've read the whole book, and at the at the end, I say this is not a spoiler that like I'm doing the best I can. It could be wrong. But there, there's a there's a longer story behind this, and I wrote a an essay for my friend Alex Robertson Tech Store. He edits a magazine called Fields and Stations, and he asked me to write a piece for this inaugural issue of his magazine. And I had been suffering from a very black depression, the kind of like you can't get out of bed, you can't do anything, sort of like very this is really bad, and. Alex called me and said, I'm launching this magazine. I want you to write this piece for me. Uh, I saved a slot at the back of the magazine for you to write a memory piece. Write whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. And I said, Alex, I can't. Like my brain is broken right now. Nothing is working. I have no memory. I have, I just am like in this black place. I'm really sorry. I love that you asked me, but that's not going to happen. And he said, okay, take your time. I hope you feel better soon. I hope you get what you need. And I'm going to ask you again. And so Alex and I had maybe three phone calls. And on the fourth one, he said to me, did you tell me that you had been to Sharm el-Sheikh back in the early 80s before that piece of land went back to Egypt? And I said, yeah, I was. That was a really long time ago. And he said, I would love it if you could write 
a piece for me about that. I, that's, it would be perfect. And I said the same, I told him the same story again, right? Which is that's not going to happen, Alex. There's nothing, nothing is working. Everything is just like a big, wet, gray cloud. So I put the phone down and I went and I turned on my computer and I wrote this essay for Alex, it's 1600 words. And I sent it off and he said, what, what happened? This is, this is perfect. It's exactly what I want. What happened? And I said, Alex, I think you just asked me the right question. So he sent me into the attic to go look for something specific. And I opened the box, right? Like I just opened the box. And when I started writing this story for, which is about a very specific moment. And it actually, there's a bit here where I talk about this, turning this scrap of mirror, which is in that story, everything just sort of appeared in this weird, complete way. Like I opened the box and all the pictures flew out and I could just see all of it. I don't really understand the, the neuroscience of memory or any of that kind of stuff. There's some, I'm sure there is some science that <laughs> pins all this down, that all that stuff is, is hardwired. It's written to your brain and all you have to do is find the key to go get it. And, you know, my friend Alex was like, I want you to go find this one specific thing. And everything fell. The more I spent, the more time I spent working on it, the more I recalled. So the longer I spent, you know, sort of trying to mentally revisit Egypt, trying to mentally like put myself back on that trip to Luxor, the more I was like, oh, right. I remember this girl with her parakeet, these very small things that, are what make stories real for you, right? Like you can you can have these broad things about, you know, you can go look at pictures of the temples now and and they they're I'm sure that the the way they're maintained is with much more care than they were when I was there because it really was just this abandoned complex that you would give somebody 37 cents and they would turn a mirror so to reflect the sunlight inside and now I imagine that there's real lighting and a ticketing system and all these things I don't know. But I remembered this bit about this, you know, skinny young man turning a scrap, a mirror to reflect the light onto the paintings on the inside of the tomb and things like that make, made it real again for me in ways that, you know, just looking at pictures of the temples didn't, they were just these funny little things that I would, they would just appear in my brain um, I, I don't really, it feels a little bit, I don't know. It's, it's a little bit magic to me that, that, yeah. that I had such specific, clear memories of certain things that happened. Mm -hmm. I yeah. guess one, one of the, the driving, I guess, interests of, of memoir in general is that it, you know, may not necessarily be truth with a capital T, every single detail, but the the larger or, or, or deeper emotional truth, uh, the psychodrama of the memoir, that's right. that's the, the, the important truth here, not, you know, some minor detail that helps with set or setting or, you know, right. place. So, But those minor details are what make the story credible, you know? Mm -hmm. Without them, they're just you're just painting in broad strokes and the minor details make them really specific. Um, there's a funny, you know, David Sedaris, the national public radio humorist, he has, I, I've heard him say this quote in a bunch of um, 
interviews online and he said, you know, people ask me if these stories are true and I say they're true enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. True enough. Right. And and that's how I feel about, that's how I feel about this is that it's, it's true enough. I believe in the details more than I believe in the broader picture. When I, when I look back those, because those details are so clear to me. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. Uh, I will let you go now. Uh, before we do that, can you just let us know uh, where we can find you online and all your details? Yeah, I'm Nerds Eye View on all the things. <laughs> <laughs> so it's pretty easy. Like there, that's where I am on Twitter. That's I'm nerdseyeview.com. That's my blog. You can find me there. And if you go there, you find all the other stuff Instagram, Facebook, whatever. Uh, and then Statesider is statesider.us. Okay, I'll put all the links in the show notes. And uh, cool. Pam, thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jeremy. You can find the episode show notes and much more at travelwritingworld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com support. <laughs>